my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we're so excited to welcome Jessica Leahy to the show. Jess is a teacher and a New York Times bestselling author. Okay, so I want to start with a question. So I'm a lawyer. You went Me to too. law school. Yeah, yes. exactly. But you didn't practice. So what led you to law school? So I went to law school. I had been working for the Duke University Child Protection Team, which assesses kids usually just for sort of evidence of sexual, physical and sexual abuse. It's a team of physicians and social workers. Through that, I met uh, this incredible attorney, now a judge, named Marsha Morey, who works in Durham County District Court in North Carolina. And she just became my mentor. And I became just so excited by the idea of working in juvenile court. And especially in North Carolina, they had bridged sort of the gap between, you know, the best interests of the community, the best interests of the kids. And it was just a really collaborative place. And I was really excited. I was positive that's what I was going to do. Absolutely positive. And then over the summer um, at law school at UNC, I was asked to teach a class at the Duke Talent Identification Program. I taught uh, law in a democratic society for sort of gifted middle school kids. And that was it. I joke all the time that I came home from that first day of teaching. My husband took one look at me and he said, are you even going to finish law school? Because it, I was glowing. I was absolutely glowing. So I did finish, Aww. but I went straight into teaching. I started teaching even before I finished law school. So yeah, that was it for me. So let's talk about your teaching career. And mm -hmm. you obviously have so much invested in the kids when mm -hmm. you were a teacher. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what made you able to click with so many different kinds of kids when a lot of teachers struggle with that. 
So I started with that group of sort of gifted middle school students, and that was really fun. I mean, it was really, really lovely. But then I started teaching high school, and I, you know, really fell in love with that. And I still had that sort of that bias that I needed to teach the older kids because that's the serious stuff. Like, mm. you know, teaching college, you know, the closer you can get to college, the better I must be, the smarter I must be because I'm teaching the harder stuff. And that was a bias I held for a really long time until I was offered to apply. Someone emailed me and said, will you please apply for this job teaching middle school? And I'm like, no, why would I teach middle school? I mean, middle school. And she said, the headmaster said, will you just come and meet the kids? Just come, just come. It'll, you know, just come see. And that was it. I went I fell so in love that I withdrew my application at another high school teaching position that I was I was sort of hoping to use that middle school offer, you know, loose offer to apply as like a, a bargaining chip for the high school job. And I just withdrew my application. And that was it. I was sunk um, for. So I taught middle school for a while. And then I sold the gift of failure in 2013. Also got sober in 2013, had a head injury in 2013. The students are still a part of this story because then I started teaching in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. So now I'm back teaching middle school and high school level kids, but kids who really have been alienated from learning, who have been told that they're stupid, have been told that there's no expectations of them, have been told that, you know, why even bother? You're just going to end up in prison like the rest of the men in your family, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't think it ever has been for me about finding it's it's hard to explain. Middle school is magic because they're these people in a transition that I just love They're I call them my pupa people because they're still sweet and cute and they want to hug and they still need their morning hug. I had a couple of students who would come to my home, come to homeroom every morning just for their morning hug. They're mm -hmm. still not jaded They're And they're in this incredible process of becoming like the difference between sixth grade and eighth grade is massive. And I taught all three grades at the same time. And there was just something magical about getting to teach a kid for three years straight and watch them make that transition. And the other thing about middle school that's amazing is it's, as I mentioned in Gift of Failure, it's a big setup. Their brains are not yet capable of handling everything that we throw at them from an executive function standpoint in middle school. And yet we ask it of them anyway, with the expectation that they're going to screw up all over the place. And then my job is to watch all this screw up happen and find the learning moments for those kids. And that's, you know, those stories is sort of where Gift of Failure was born. Teaching the kids in the rehab, mainly kids that were like, the youngest we taught was just barely 13. So mainly those kids were like between 15 and 18. And my expectations of what a good teaching day really shifted teaching those kids. Because for some of those kids, they, you know, just getting them to pick up a book was a big win in a day. Just getting them excited about learning anything, just getting to the point where I could make any kind of connection with them at all when many of them were highly distrustful of adults because mm -hmm. so many adults had let them down. So I'm very much a fan of the, you have to teach the kids in front of you as opposed to like the imaginary high achieving kids that you kind of wish were in front of you. You teach the kids in front of you and as long as you're seeing them and hearing them and getting to know them and understanding where they're coming from, then you're gonna be in, the, in good shape. And that's for me, the challenge every day is figuring out who's in front of me, even kids I know really, really well. I mean, their guinea pig could have died the night before. In fact, that happened once. His name was Squeaky. Squeaky, the guinea pig died, and Squeaky's mom was incapable of learning that day. And so you have to be able to recognize those, you know, when your students are available to learn and when they're not, and then protect them as much as possible to make it so that learning can happen. How are adults failing children? You know, it it really depends on who we're talking about. I think if I were to clump it all together into one big claim, one thing I hear from students a lot, one of the things I get to do when I speak in schools is I get to talk to the kids during the day, and then I talk to the teachers doing professional development in the afternoon, and then I talk to the parents in the evening. So I give all of the kids my email, and I say, I'm going to be talking to your parents tonight. What do you want me to tell your parents tonight? Mm -hmm. What do they maybe need to hear from me that they're not hearing from you? What it, What is it you want me to tell them? 
And the thing I get most often is in some iteration that they don't feel known, heard, seen, understood. Because in some iteration, they say something like, I am not my brother. I am not my sister. I'm not you when you were my age. I am not some imaginary kid you think you're raising. I am me, and you are not seeing, hearing, understanding who I am. Because we only talk about what you want to talk about. Because um, you have such expectations of who you want me to be that you're not actually seeing who I am. So by far, that's the biggest thing kids tell me, by Mm. far. So I think, you know, whether kids are, you know, highly privileged in some highfalutin, you know, private school where they have every advantage and every resource and all the supports possible, those kids are telling me that they don't feel seen or heard or known for who they are. And then the kids who I was teaching um, in the rehab that, you know, maybe had very little support and very high adverse childhood experiences scores, who kids who really needed just one adult to love and support them and understand them, those kids are saying the same thing. You know, there was this one kid I was teaching and we were writing about someone at school that has been a good influence on you. And this kid actually had been kicked out of high school. If he finished rehab, he was going to be allowed to possibly go back. And he was trying to decide whether he was going to finish high school or not. And so I was trying to get him thinking. I was trying to be sneaky with my writing and get him thinking about the benefits of going back and you know, the people who believe in him and stuff like that. And essentially what he told me was there was no one he had at his school who understood or cared or that was had been. I was asking them to write about someone at their school who'd been a good example or who had cared about them or had been offered a positive experience. And he said, I can't do that. And I said, well, it doesn't have to be a teacher. And he said, oh, I can do that then. And it turns out that it was this guy who sort of babysat the kids in the rubber room, the room where the kids get sent when they um, do something bad. And he said that, he said, if I go back to high school, it's going to be because of that guy, because he's the only one who will notice if I don't show up or who will care. And, you know, research shows that if we have, if no matter what a kid has gone through, if we, if that kid has one person who cares, supports, knows the kid for who they are. Um, that they're a heck of a lot more likely to do okay in their life. Do you think this idea of not hearing children, of kind of pointing them in one direction, is something new to recent generations, or is it something that has always existed? You know, I think it's always existed in one form or another, you know, like carrying on the family business or, you know, doing what mom and dad did. That's, you know, that's something that I remember when my – and it's really interesting. My dad told me that um, he was – he went to college and not a lot of people in his family had gone to college. And then he decided to go to graduate school. And his father told him that that was the dumbest thing he'd ever heard because his father, you know, worked, it was a, you know, worked in manual labor and blue, well, blue collar stuff. And, you know, he just couldn't even imagine what um, going to graduate school. So there was this And that sort of negative expectation, I think, is a thing as well. But I think the difference now is that, you know, everyone, because of the media, because of sort of what we do to each other as parents, the stakes feel so high that our understanding of what success is has gotten so narrowed that um, there are only a few paths possible. I had a kid email me a week and a half ago because I was speaking to the parents at the school that night. And he said, please tell my parents that I'm going to need them to be there for me, even if this college thing doesn't work out, because I'm going to need them to reassure me that I can be happy anyway. Oh, my gosh. These these stories make me cry. No, I mean, the idea was and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially that was it's very close to what it said. And the essentially the message there is if. The colleges that he, you know, and this has been a wonky year for college acceptance. It's been kind of crazy. Um, But his message was, you know, if this college thing doesn't work out the way they want it to, can I still be happy? I mean, he really needed someone for him and he didn't feel like he had that. So that was what he desperately wanted. So when I'm saying this is so sad, I'm really not saying, oh, that's so sad. Those parents are doing Mm -hmm. something wrong because as the parent of, you know, three kids, two teenagers, I'm always worried that they might feel not seen for who they are or that I'm, you know, somehow guiding their path in a direction that's not feeling authentic to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things I loved about your latest book, but also your first book, is sort of 
the the vulnerability you show as a parent as well, right? So you you approach this not just as an educator, but also as a parent yourself. Mm-hmm. So how has your experience impacted your parenting? I have the best job in the world, which is essentially that I get to get curious about things that matter to me and that are important to my family or my students and research the heck out of them. I'm a big research geek. I love it so much. I'm about to start book three, and I have like a summer of dorking out around the research ahead of me, and I'm, I couldn't be happier. So my job is to go do that, you know, for the addiction inoculation. I spent a year researching before the proposal even f- was finished because in order to write a proposal, you need to, you know, be at a certain place with the research. And so I've changed. There, a lot has changed. I mean, after Gift of Failure, I changed the way I taught and I changed the way I parented, mainly because the research for Gift of Failure was around the benefits of autonomy, supportive parenting and teaching, giving kids more choice, giving kids, helping kids feel competent instead of just confident. So that changed a lot about teaching and parenting. You know, we've been talking a lot in our house lately about the fact that the way we parent around substances has changed between my two kids because my older kid now is 22. My younger kid is 17. And I raised my 22-year-old in a house where he was allowed to have sips of alcohol and he was allowed to, I say in the in the book that I actually put wine on his tongue when he was an infant. It was a really nice bottle of wine though. And uh, I, you know, we had this sort of more permissive attitude around drinking. And now my 17-year-old is being, now that I've read all of this research and I've digested all the research and really looked at the research in the context of, you know, causation and correlation and confounding, you know, factors in the research. Our 17-year-old is being raised in a home now with a consistent message of no, not until you're 21, not until it's legal, not just because of the law, but because of your brain and what's happening to your brain in adolescence. And he thinks that's completely unfair, which, you know, from one perspective it is. But on the other hand, I'm modeling exactly what I want to see from my children, which is we do the best we can based on the evidence that we have, the learning we've done. If that changes because we learn something new, we don't pretend like the way we've done it all along is fine. We, you know, change what we're doing in order to do the best we can do given what we've learned. And being humble about what we've been doing wrong has worked out pretty well for me because I have to say a lot of really difficult things to parents and the fact that I've done a lot of stuff wrong um, sort of helps me um, break through that and, and be heard. But, you know, I want him to do that. I want him to say, oh, you know, I thought I was doing this pretty well based on what I understood, but I just learned all this stuff. And so now I have to change what I'm doing in order to um, do better. And so, you know, I'm sorry that you don't like my approach to alcohol in our home now. And pot. We're in Vermont, so it's legal here. But if I didn't change what I was doing, that would not make me the best possible parent. I can't do the best that I can do if I'm ignoring the evidence. And the evidence shows is that families who have a consistent and clear message of no, not until you're 21 or whatever the legal age is, have kids with lower incidence of substance use disorder over their lifetime. And P.S. My kids came into this world with an increased risk because of their genetics. So I, you know, I ignore all that research at my and their peril, right? Because 50 to 60% of the picture for risk is genetics and they're kind of screwed when where that's concerned. Does your husband give the same message? Are you on the same mm-hmm. page around that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, we got tested on that just the other night. My husband had ordered We've been ordering all takeout. He, my husband's an infectious diseases physician, so we have not eaten in a restaurant and all that kind of stuff. So we ordered takeout, and they gave him a cocktail in a can that was not what he actually ordered, and it was something new. And it was something that my son wanted a sip of, and my husband said, no, it has alcohol in it. Whereas with my older son, we would have given him a taste. So, And he, what was funny is he was testing us. He was absolutely 100% testing us. Wow. And he looked us in the face when it was happening, and he's like, you know, he and his brother make fun of us all the time. But, you know, we're doing the best we can do. And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. 
One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. One of the the things that really stood out to me in reading the addiction inoculation is that the legalization of marijuana, I mean, I live in California. We see billboards. We, we just took a big road trip. My kids must have seen 20 billboards for yeah. how accessible marijuana is, how wonderful it is. They make it look so appealing. And in reading your book, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is really one of the worst things that happened to kids, the legalization of marijuana. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened and the impact on kids? Sure. I will say, by the way, uh, I was in L.A. doing interviews a couple of years ago, and I took – Finn with me, my now 17-year-old with me. And I think then he was like 15 or something, 14. And we were in Studio City for an interview. And he looked around. He said, so this is the sushi and weed part of town. And I said, yeah, pretty much. This is the sushi (laughs) and weed part of town. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, So, yeah, we moved to Vermont uh, where it is legal. And um, what's really interesting is that for the past decade or so, adolescent drug and alcohol use has been declining over the past decade, steadily declining. Right before the pandemic hit, it kind of plateaued a little bit, which is a little worrisome. And there's been there's often a novelty bump for um, for marijuana simply because it's suddenly there. My kids have made it very clear to me it would be much easier for them to get pot than to get a tobacco cigarette that that would just be a much easier get for them, which was surprising to me, but also makes sense just given just given, I don't know, a place like Vermont. So, but I actually, they said that when we lived in New Hampshire too. So it would just, you know, it's much easier for them to get a tobacco cigarette, which was really interesting to me. So vaping is the one area where there has been actually a rise. And 
it's unclear. So there's there's three different kinds of vaping. There's sort of, well, more than that, but there's basically vaping flavors, vaping nicotine and vaping marijuana or THC. And all three of those have sort of had a, a bit of a, a rise. And definitely actually among adults, what's been really interesting, the, you know, obviously alcohol consumption during the pandemic has gone way up. But also, marijuana use and psychedelic use have gone up in adults over the past couple of years, which makes sense. I mean, Michael Pollan's out there talking about psychedelic use, and Dr. Carl Hart just wrote a book called Drug Use for Grownups. And I I always like to frame for people that keep in mind that the stuff that I'm writing about is about drug and alcohol use in adolescents, not adults, because the things that may have very low or no risk in adulthood have so much more risk to the adolescent brain. Do you think there should be a law that maybe over 21 it's legal? Well, that's what it is in most states. So, yeah. Just certain states like California and Vermont. Yeah. Or the, well, or the and what's so crazy is that I'm so much more worried about, I mean, alcohol is so much more dangerous on so many fronts in terms of terrible health care outcomes and drunk driving and suicide. I mean, suicides take place in presence of alcohol most of the time. I mean, it's, you know, Ooh. alcohol is just so dangerous. It's just that it's normal to us because it's it's legal and it's been a part of our, you know, culture for so long. But and I'm and never in a million years am I going to say, oh, prohibition, yay, because that doesn't work either. But you know, let's not get all worried about marijuana when actually, you know, alcohol is a much more dangerous um, drug, not only on the front end with use, but, uh, you know, alcohol is the one, one of the only drugs that you can die from during detox. So let's keep some perspective here, people. You mentioned rural Vermont mm -hmm. and New Hampshire. And I remember when I first saw your friendship, I guess, live, you and KJ together. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm talking about KJ Dale Antonia. And, and you just had this incredible friendship. I couldn't get over the fact that you're both from this tiny town in New Hampshire. And I was so jealous of that <laughs> partnership you had. I mean, now Amy's like my KJ, but it was really cool. It was like Gail and Oprah. So can you talk to us about the role that that friendship has played in your life? It's been so important. So KJ and I met through a friend who I'm, we're st both really, really close with. And she said, hey, you want to make this writing thing work out. And KJ is sort of making this writing thing work out. You should, guys should talk. And so that was the beginning of our relationship. KJ at the time was writing for Slate and was just piecing together a bit of a freelance career. And she had been an attorney. She actually was a prosecutor in um, in Manhattan. And she moved to New Hampshire because her husband took a job in New Hampshire. And I was there because my husband had taken a job at Dartmouth. And it was just it. And we both had kids and it just worked out really well. Now, actually, that friendship, uh, the two of us has turned into a little triumvirate because we host a podcast called the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast with another. So KJ is a best-selling author. Her book, The Chicken Sisters, was uh, Reese Witherspoon's pick for December. Our yeah. other podcast co-host is Serena Bowen. And Serena, when we first met her, um, had written her first novel and it flopped. And she's she will not be upset with me for saying that. She says it all the time. It absolutely flopped. And she started self-publishing her own um, romance, contemporary romance. And she's now a many times over best-selling author of contemporary romance. She's also She also has a degree in economics from Yale. She used to be on Wall Street. And so she's taken all of that knowledge and applied it to the book business. And so if we ever need a data breakdown on something, she's our gal. She's the, the spreadsheet queen. She loves to dig around in my royalty statements and just sort of she likes to analyze the book business. So the three of us together, I think, make a really we text each other all day long. And that's what really is at the core of every day for me. All day long, we text each other about how the writing's going. All day long, we text about right now we're texting a lot about college admissions because one of them has a kid who's, um, you know, sort of trying to figure all that out. And it's the one it's the one if I lost that, I would be so adrift. Um, these two women are essential to me in terms of not just having someone to talk to about the craft of writing, but having someone to talk to about the money, about the kids, about marriage, about 
everything. And moving two hours away from them, because my house was actually in between Serena and KJ's house, and I used to be able to walk mm. through the woods. To walk to KJ's house, I would walk through some woods and up through a meadow and then a little patch of woods and then into the meadow above KJ's house and then drop down into her yard. And that's how I would get to her house. And I miss that. But, you know, we're two hours away from each other. We make it work. Do you talk to your boys about the importance of friendship? Yeah, especially since writing The Addiction Inoculation, mainly because uh, friendships, peer relationships are so important in looking at um, it used to be the the thing that people used to the thing that I used to say is that peer cohort, you know, if a kid's friends are doing drugs, your kid is going to do drugs. And it is nowhere near that clear. In fact, the entire peer chapter in the book is based on a relationship my older child had with a boy named Brian. And by the way, Brian and Georgia, I try to give a shout out in every interview I do because Georgia and Brian, those are their real names. And they were adamant that I use their real names because both of them have been through hell. And the fact that they are now in a position to help other people make some of that hell worth it for them is what they have told me. And that's definitely how I feel about this book myself. So Ben's relationship with Brian you know, it scared me to death that Brian was getting kicked out of high school because of his substance use and that my son wanted to remain loyal and go visit him in rehab and all that stuff. And my first instinct was to say, absolutely not. You may not be friends with him. We all know how that goes. You may not be friends with him. And, you know, no way, no how. It's too dangerous. That relationship with Brian, I think, ended up not only being incredibly protective for Ben and educational, it was one of the things that saved Brian. I think his his core group of friends that included Ben at school was one of the reasons that it finally clicked for him. And he said, oh, oh, this is what I stand to lose. And that's why I love my job is being able to look at the data and say, is that sort of com that commonly held belief? Is that a myth or is that a mis misconception of a misunderstanding of the data? Or is there just more gray area than anyone's willing to admit to? Because it's easier to say, you know, if your kid's friends do drugs, your kid's going to do drugs. I think that's just easier to say. So it's a much more complicated picture. But yeah, we talk to them a lot because it really does make a difference who your kid's friends are and why they're friends with them. And we talk a lot. For example, I um, one of the things KJ did for me once that just always sticks with me is we were going somewhere and she called ahead to make sure that there were going to be non-alcoholic things for me there. And she always makes efforts to have really interesting non-alcoholic stuff at her dinner functions at her house. So I always have options. That's what a good friend does for you. A good friend, you know, keeps you safe and supports your decisions and your health. And I talk about that because I want my kids, I want to model for my kids what supportive good relationships are. So that if my kid is in a position where they're, you know, they're coming home anxious or they're coming home feeling depressed, I was talking to a kid just recently who has a friend who's really struggling with drugs and she's trying to figure out how to help her. And there are moments when sometimes you have to say, is this friendship, as much as I want to help this person, is this friendship pulling me down or pulling me in a dangerous direction? Because that's not what good friends do. Good friends don't want you to be in a position of risk because they're in a position of risk. They want you and, you know, to help you out of positions of risk. So yeah, it's really important to talk to kids about and model positive relationships, which can be tough because it forces us to have to look at our own relationships. But they watch, they know what we're up to. So they they see if we're friends with people who are toxic, and we let those toxic people pull us down, they see that and then they assume that that's acceptable. Absolutely. One of my favorite stories in the book was your concern about moving because Ugh. you knew that relocating was one of the risk factors, right? right? Divorce, relocating, right. all these changes in teens' lives. And how Daniel Siegel gave you this great advice, which was that teens love novelty. So yeah. it's how you're framing it that's the problem. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I wrote an article just recently, actually, for the Boston Globe about one of the best things we can do for kids during the pandemic to help them come out of it with resilience is to help reframe for kids, help kids see when things feel hopeless, helpless, um, when they feel like they're coming, when they're coming down hard on themselves and saying, oh, I'm so dumb, I can't, blah, blah, blah. 
or, oh, I'm just bad or whatever, to help them reframe that in terms of um, make it more specific and um, help them maybe see stress in a different way. And the way we do that is by starting with ourselves. And thank goodness for Dr. Siegel, because I was just beating myself up over the move because I moved Finn between middle school and high school, a really precarious transition time for kids. It's when kids tend to experiment with drugs. Summers are a precarious time. My son had great friends with amazing parents that I loved and knew really well and trusted. You know, we moved to this new place with a big school district where, you know, families could be literally from one end of the district to the other an hour away. And I don't know their parents. I don't know any of them. But I was telling Dan Siegel about this on the phone. And he said, you know, I think you're just thinking about this wrong. Kids, adolescents, as you well know, need novelty. And, you know, actually, and people tend to oversimplify and say kids are wired for risk. And that's not quite right. And anytime I've said that in the past, I wish I could take it back because it's not that they're wired for risk. It's that they're wired for novelty. And often novelty includes risk. And they should be because that's the function of adolescence. And so if I approach this move as an opportunity to guide my kid toward all kinds of positive risks, like exploring a new environment, making new friends, trying out for new things, trying a new club, trying a new activity, trying something he's never done before, those are all positive risks that can fulfill a kid's need for that. Because keep in mind, adolescents have lower levels of dopamine than young children or adults. So when kids say they feel bored, as they so often do, it's not because they have a lack of imagination. It's because they really do feel bored. Life feels less exciting when you have lower dopamine levels. And so, of course, they're going to look for excitement and novelty mm. and a little bit of risk. So anytime we can give them opportunities for positive risk, um, risk that's a little safer, a little less harmful, then we should be doing that. And these are, adolescence in particular, is a moment when you need to say, wait a second, am I freaking out over this because it's truly risky or because it just feels risky to me? And as much as we can sort of pull back and say, wait, let me get some a bigger view on this. Is this a risk I should let him take because I don't want him to default to some other riskier behavior like premature sex or jumping off of a garage into a pool or doing drugs or alcohol? So yeah, reframe, let them, and reframe yourself first and then help your kid reframe so that they can understand the the opportunities available to them even when things seem pretty dire. My kids are really young, but you know, we're talking a lot about adolescence and mm -hmm. I know when we, we talk about the book, it's such a, a big piece of it. But what's it like parenting a 22-year-old? What's different <laughs> about that? 20, it's great. I mean, honestly, from my kids are both hilarious and fascinating and they think very differently they think very differently from each other and they think very differently from me it's been really fun to watch them become their own people and to have interests that are so different than mine and so different from what i expected from them when they were little so you know from my perspective every age is really cool for some reason and you know for whether it's because you know little babies are cute or toddlers are cute or whatever and middle school kids are just hilarious, but you know, older teens, it's it's pretty amazing. And especially I have five years between my kids. So there was a period where they just had nothing in common. And the pandemic mm -hmm. happened to coincide with a period where they were starting to have things in common again. And the younger one could start to talk to the older one on his level. So the pandemic presented us with whatever, five, six months of time together that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And it has been an invaluable period for them for bonding. And I'm really grateful for that. It's been really fun. But back to your point, you know, preventing substance abuse really does start in preschool. So, you know, the conversations start really, really young and they start about things like I know this isn't what you asked me, but, you know, starting with little kids, you start with conversations like, you know, why do you spit out the toothpaste instead of swallowing it? Why uh, do you wash your Why do we wash our hands? Why do we wear a mask? Why do we um, see this bottle of medicine on the counter? Can you find the letters of mommy's name on that label? And, you know, what what if you needed the same medicine? Could you just take the medicine that has mommy's name on it? Why or why not? And 
those conversations lead pretty naturally into harder conversations about prescription drugs or tobacco use or whatever later on. But starting really young with conversations that have to do with sort of health and safety and what we put in our bodies and why, those are really, really important to have. And now for a quick break. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Gift of Failure was one of my favorite books. I I bought it in bulk and gave (laughs) it to so many people. By the way, which meant the world to me because I so trust your opinion and value your judgment. And I was so grateful for that. That meant a lot to me. Thanks, Jess. I really loved it. And Amy and I were just talking today about the idea of overparenting. And I was telling her that we have a a college professor friend who said that 60% of his students' parents contact him Mm -hmm. regularly. Yeah. And I hear from those professors all the time. Yeah. When we were in college, our parents didn't know the names of our professors. So I I don't understand how this has happened. Yeah. Yeah. What is going on? Yeah. Yeah, I got in trouble a little while ago, and I'm going to be very careful in how I tell this story to not get in trouble the same way I got in trouble before. But I go and speak at a couple of colleges, one in particular every, well, pre-pandemic, every year I talk to the parents of freshmen in college to help them, you know, just just help them sort of separate a little bit from their college freshmen. And, you know, I was talking to this one parent whose daughter had um, a chronic illness, and The daughter had never, ever learned to manage her chronic illness on her own because the mom just was worried that she wouldn't think of everything. And the mother now lived a couple of hours away from the daughter. And I asked her, and she was talking to me about it, and I asked her, I said, so what's your exit strategy here? Like, where, when is the weaning going to happen? Because you don't live close enough to your daughter to save her life if something goes wrong. And she said, honestly, 
she didn't know when that was going to happen because it just made her too nervous to let her daughter be 100%, you know, in charge of that. And and I see that a lot. You know, when I taught middle school, we often would have parents who wanted us to do make a lot of accommodations for their kid. Luckily, they were at an independent school and, you know, we could we could make a lot of accommodations for a very small number of students. But we would always get to a place where we'd start to say, OK, so they're going to go to a much bigger high school next year. We need to start weaning off some of these accommodations because they're not going to have a plan that's going to allow for those accommodations in high school. So let's start weaning. And I've had parents tell me, no, we want every accommodation until the very last minute. No weaning. And that puts a kid or a young adult in such a precarious place because that's just doing so much harm to a kid. It's making them feel like not only is it make, is it rendering the kid incompetent about life, it's also telling the kid on a repeated basis that we don't trust them to be able to handle these things on their own. And, you know, that's really whether that's, you know, your kid. And I did this with my own, you know, tying my own kid's shoes for too long. Essentially, I was tying his shoes because it took less time if I did it. And I hated seeing him upset or frustrated. And he didn't have the manual dexterity to handle it. But as I continued to do it, what I was telling him was that I didn't think he had the competence to handle it on his own. So, you know, I did that to him. I turned my kid into a helpless individual, this thing called learned helplessness. I imposed that on him because I didn't want to feel bad about him feeling bad. Can you talk about sort of what we consider addiction right now, which is the screen addiction? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Because that affects both kids, Amy's kids' ages and my kids and yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So using the word addiction around screens is really like, well, first of all, we're not even supposed to be using the word addiction. We're supposed to be using the word substance okay. use disorder when it comes to substances. So you can see the issue if we're getting rid of the word addiction because some people have said, well, you know, it's being overused. There's all kinds of, quote, addiction that isn't really addiction. Screens are, this is a really tough one because screens aren't a chemical that we're putting into our body that's getting locked into, you know, receptors for that chemical. But it's activating a chemical, dopamine, that is then getting locked in, but it's our, our body's own dopamine. But gamers, people who, sorry, not gamers, people who create games are incredibly good at, and, you know, even at Netflix, you know, now it used to be that, you know, the interval between going on to the next episode was much longer. But, you know, now if you, it's just like, it's 12 seconds or something crazy like that, you know, it'll just go right to the next one. People who create games absolutely understand how to keep kids playing and how to keep kids going. And, you know, that is also using manipulating dopamine, but at least it's our own naturally occurring dopamine. So using the word addiction with screens is a really fraught thing. So when we're talking about, quote, addiction or what we should be calling substance use disorder because we're supposed to use that person first language. And in fact, that's been changed in, you know, the AP, the style guide for the AP. Now you're not supposed to use the word addiction. You're supposed to use substance use disorder. You're not even supposed to say substance abuse because that puts the onus back on the person who's misusing the substance. So we're supposed to say person with substance use disorder, which obviously makes it so that suddenly now using addiction with things that don't aren't substances is problematic. I will tell you that so, that screen time and managing screen time so often is tied into other things like parents will say you can't use your screen until your homework is done or you can't use your screen until you've done your household chore sort of thing. I ask people to sort of keep it separate so that screen time and the screen limits and things like that are not tied to schoolwork or not tied to, you know, whether or not they're contributing in the household, that it's a completely separate sort of part of the, the deal. I will say also that this isn't my wheelhouse. Screen time and the way it manipulates our brain, we're now squarely in, for example, Devorah Heitner's. Uh, Devorah Heitner wrote this great book called ScreenWise, and she runs an organization called Raising Digital Natives, and she's brilliant. Can you talk about your experience overcoming alcohol addiction? Sure, yeah. Or alcohol, I should say, your experience. <laughs> Substance use disorder as it relates to alcohol. Now, see, here's the problem. As we know, sometimes the language that we're supposed to use that, you know, the word is addiction in the title of my book, because 
a lot of people, that's what they understand. And, you know, you try coming up with a title that uses substance use disorder in the title. Yeah. Anyway, so I was raised in a family, as was my husband, uh, where on both sides of our family, there's a lot of substance use disorder. Um, and I was raised in a family where a parent had alcoholism and uh, we weren't allowed to talk about it. Full stop. In fact, if we talked about it or brought it up, we got in trouble. So and there was a lot of gaslighting like, no, that's not what's going on. You're not really seeing that. It's something else. And as we know, gaslighting is so emotionally manipulative and it's so damaging, especially to a kid, to tell a kid that what they are perceiving is not what they are perceiving, you know, from a trusted grown up that you love makes a kid question so many things and in turn makes the kid question the adult and say, well, where's your judgment then? Because this is what I'm seeing. And so anyway, I didn't talk about it for a very long time because I really wasn't allowed to. And then when my sister and I were finally allowed to talk about it because we were adults, you know, I ran to the other end of the spectrum. I didn't really drink during college. I didn't really drink in my 20s. I had kids and then it snuck up on me. I just I thought I you know, you're watching something so carefully. And I even had my husband watching because we know for each other that it's in our genes. And so we need to keep an eye on things. And it just snuck up on me. And by the time I hit my 40s, I'm 50 now. And by the time I hit my 40s, I just, um, I was drinking too much. And even before I was drinking too much, I was thinking about it too much. It was just there all the time. And I started to feel uncomfortable about it when it was just an intrusive thought all of the time. And then, you know, as the drinking ramped up, I had to, it came to a crisis when I sold the gift of failure and I was drinking way too much. Um, I was drinking about a bottle of wine a day at least and hiding it and all of the things you do. I had to, I revealed all this stuff in the book that my husband had never heard and didn't know about. He didn't know about my wine slushies in the freezer and all that sort of stuff. So and he didn't know why I always had to be the one to do the recycling and all that sort of stuff. So that was interesting. But my last drunk was at my mom's birthday party at my parents' house. And there were a lot of people there that I loved and I'd known my whole life. And I don't remember what happened because I just don't remember. I was in a blackout. And I'm glad I don't remember because I heard it wasn't very good. <laughs> So the next morning, my dad came up to the sat at the end of the bed and said, I know what an alcoholic looks like and you are an alcoholic. And I had no excuses. I was 100 percent ready. And I went to my first 12 step meeting that night and I went to a place far away from my house because I didn't want anyone who knew me to see me. Not, of course, realizing that if they're there, they probably are there for their own reasons. I really <laughs> didn't want the parents of my students to see me. And one one finally yeah. did. Actually, I, I ran into a parent of one of my students at a meeting and she looked at me. She said, you're my worst nightmare. And I looked at her and I said, no, nope, you're my worst nightmare. And <laughs> once we laughed over that, we realized, OK, so our worst nightmares have come true and it wasn't that bad. Um, you know, we're both mm -hmm. there for the reasons we're there. So um, it's been over seven and a half years. It'll be eight years on uh, July 7th. Oh, no, sorry, June 7th Congratulations. this year. Thank oh, you. Awesome. Thank you. That's it's awesome. been great. It's the stress level, boy. It's I was spending so much energy on on all of the worrying and the maintaining my right to drink and hiding things and not sleeping. And uh, it was exhausting. So it was a bit of a relief when I finally got called on it. Wow. All right. Lightning round. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Jess. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Amy. What are you reading? I am reading my, actually, my co-host's book right now. Serena Bowen has a brand new book out in her Brooklyn Bruiser series. She invented a hockey team in Brooklyn. And it's called, this one is called the or called Bombshells. And it's her, part of her Brooklyn Bruiser series. And it's just delightful. What is your favorite beverage these days? That's easy, actually. I take Gerolsteiner's uh, Fizzy Water Hound. We drink cases of it. And I mix it with either cherry juice or blueberry juice, like the really that Knudsen really concentrated cherry juice or blueberry juice. And I put seltzer in that and make sort of my own soda. That sounds delicious. Mm. I've read that you sleep a lot. I do. What is, <laughs> what is your nighttime routine? My nighttime routine is my husband has to get up really early. So we um, and oh, this is going to make me sound like such an ass. And I've never told it. I've never said this out loud in an interview, but I'll go for it. When we first moved here to this house, we actually put a um, 
we put a sauna in in our basement because our neighbor had had one and we got to use hers and we realized how much we missed it. So we saved up and got a sauna and it's downstairs. So every night we have dinner. My husband and I get in the sauna together for probably about 45 minutes total. And then we shower off and then we get in bed and we're usually in bed at the latest by 930 And then we both read or scroll TikTok or doom scroll Twitter or whatever for a little while and then go to sleep with our three dogs on the bed with us. Oh, I love that. All right. I think that's that's a perfect ending. (laughs) I love it. Lou, with our male perspective, is here, and he's been listening to this entire interview, and I imagine he has a ton of thoughts. Hit us, Lou. (laughs) I have a lot of questions around (laughs) alcoholism, me being... And recovery also. Excellent. I had no idea. Most people don't. That's that's the transformation of God. Yeah. It's also, you know, know, the more people talk about it, the more people talk about it. Hmm. There's another question right there. Well, it makes it. No, I mean, every single time I'm on stage now, I make it a point to mention that I'm in recovery because every single time I do that, someone emails me because they're scared. They're worried. They're worried about this person. They're worried about themselves. And the more I talk about it, the more other people open up about it. And so that's part of my job now, I think. Yes. Yeah. My question is, is in regards to the young kids who are exploring right now, because you use the word precarious. When I was 16 years old, I was introduced to cocaine and mm-hmm. I had a, a firm resolution that I was going to use it to the day I died. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's, that's probably going to be a, an adult having what my mom was experiencing, what my sister was experiencing with me. How does a parent deal with their child now being introduced to drugs and alcohol or any type of other substance? Yeah, I think the most important thing is a lot of parents have that idea that like, oh, well, my kid has tried something. That's it. It's over. They've they've tried it. They're exposed to substances. Um, There's no going back. And, you know, the recovery world does a little bit of disservice that way, too. You know, if I were to relapse, if I were to slip and have a beer tonight, There, I have to start at day zero again. And while, you know, counting days does keep me sober, I think it's, you know, I'm really proud of the time I have. I think it can be really hard when we sort of present it to kids as a binary, you've done it or you haven't done it scenario. And if you've done it, then you're somehow used up and it's bad and you're now bad. Um, So I think making it clear that when, and this is some gift of failure stuff, that if kids try stuff, you know, they tried it. Thank you so much for confiding in me about it. Or if you find out about it, you know, thank you so much for being able to talk with me about it. So here's why that's a risk for you. Here's why what it can do to your brain. Here's why it's my job to make sure that your brain is protected until you're old enough to protect it yourself and it's done growing. And let's move forward from a place of trying not to duplicate our mistakes and figuring out what went wrong. Did you not have an exit strategy? Did you feel like you had to do it to impress someone else? And why did you feel like you had to impress someone else? What was it about you that made you feel like you weren't enough in that moment that you needed to do drink that thing or take that thing so that you would feel more than? What was it that cocaine gave you that you didn't have just being who you were? And let's address that so that you don't feel like you need to be more than who you are. And essentially, that's, you know, that's my job in a nutshell as a teacher is to help kids um, feel like they're enough so that they don't have to try to be more um, than their authentic selves. So one one, one more question. Mm -hmm. In regards to that conversation, Mm -hmm. when and in what environment should it take place? When people are calm (laughs) and have had a snack and are feeling receptive. Earlier in this conversation, I was talking about, you know, needing to have those learning moments, those moments when everyone can hear you. And it's really hard to find those moments, but they're most often when everyone is sort of calm and everyone is hydrated and fed and not coming from a place of emotion, but coming from a place of looking at the big picture. And so dealing with it right in that moment when a kid is is high or, you know, like trying to tell me I have a problem with alcohol while I'm drunk would have been just so that's when my dad did it the next morning when I was sober. So try to find the the learning moment. And most parents get to the place where they know where their kid is receptive and when their kid is not receptive. And the more we can approach them without judgment, the better. And from a place of let's do better next time, both me as a parent and both you as a kid, how can I help you and how can you uh, move forward from a place of I want to be better, whether that's, you know, as a human being, as a friend, as a kid, as a, you know, a student, whatever that 
that source is for you. Hey, where did you guys find Jess? So Jess and I met at a mom conference years ago. I think that's when we first met. And then we've kind of been in the same circle of moms and writers and have always supported each other, you know, in this like loose kind of group of people in the mom space. And I've always just so admired her, the way she thinks and the way she writes. It was interesting for me, even as a parent of young kids, you know, my kids are between one and six, to hear her talk about how the conversations around substance use disorder should start when they're in preschool. And then the example she provided was so great because when she first said it, I was like, uh, how am I supposed to start talking about that when they're this little? But to talk about right. like, oh, this is mommy's medicine. You can't take this. Why? I know. Right? I like, love that. Great. Yeah. Right. Like, because me, me, like having Janiyah, like I know what to talk about in regards to like alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, but I never would have think about like prescription drugs. Which is know? like the and, thing, now, like it's such a big problem now that wasn't probably when we, I didn't see it when we were growing up. I don't know if you did, but it's not what yeah, I saw. Yeah, it's I a big part it. of her book. Yeah. yeah, it's a big part of her book. And I think what's so incredible about the information in her book is it's not just like the research of this is what it does to your brain. But it's also like, this is how you talk to your kid. In fact, one of the things she said just now, I was like, that's such a brilliant way to share with a kid. Like, my job is to protect your brain until you're old enough and developed enough to protect it yourself. That's like the job of parents, right? Like, we're supposed to be able to protect our kids until they are old enough to protect themselves. Yeah. That's such a nice way to say it. She just has such a way of connecting with people and really getting to the heart of the issue. One other takeaway that is completely different, but that was really meaningful to me, was her discussion of her female friendship with KJ and Serena. And, you know, Sam, we talk about this a lot because our friendship is really important to us both personally and professionally. It's something that works on both yeah. of us. But I just, like, I just can't get over how important it is for us to be teaching young women, and I think young men, that your friendships can be central to your success in life you know, and we just don't talk about adult friendship enough. And I think it's so well, I, important. Yeah, you I mean, Amy, I don't think it's an accident that, you know, KJ's book was just became one of Reese Witherspoon's book picks. Like, I really think that those women have propelled each other's careers in the same way that Gail and Oprah have. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. we don't talk enough about having that core team around you that you can talk to. And of course, like, you know, when you're mom, you have mom friends. When you're dad, you have dad friends. When you're in college, you have college friends. But I think it's so great to be able to find someone that you can talk to about, what did she say? She said money, marriage, mm -hmm. her books, like everything, her kids, her college admissions. Like she has oh, these yeah. people. And I think that is critical to, you know, to really, in she's obviously invested so much in those friendships. And Completely. I mean, you look at like, and like, I don't know, like I remember reading once about the PayPal mafia, the guys that started PayPal. So they started PayPal. They all became obscenely wealthy because of it. And then they all invested in each other's future businesses and kept it going, right? And like, mm -hmm. that's what those, you know, in addition to talking about the personal parts of life, those friendships can just move you a million miles forward in terms of making money. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co, and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Network.